Welcome back. Over the next 90 minutes, we will discuss standards and novel approaches to prevent sepsis. We have fabulous speakers ready to go, and the session is moderated by Daniela Filipescu, Vice Chair of the European Sepsis Alliance. Daniela, take it away. Hello, everyone. Good evening for those in my time zone, and also good morning, good afternoon for the others. Um, I'm Daniela Filipescu. I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist and uh, intensivist in Bucharest, in Romania, secretary of the World Federation of Societies of Anesthesiologists and uh, member of the steering committee of the European Sepsis Alliance. I welcome you all to the World Sepsis Congress, to the fifth uh, session of this uh, uh, amazing uh, event and I want to thank uh, to our exclusive uh, sponsor of uh, this session, Janssen. Um, I'm very honored to, to chair this session on uh, standards and uh, uh, novel approaches to prevent uh, sepsis and uh, I am uh, uh, very happy to uh, listen to the six uh, presentations given by well-known scientists. Uh, you can read the, the short bios of the six presenters on our website. And I have a great pleasure to introduce the first um, speaker, who is Dr. Padmini uh, Srikantia. She is a senior program officer in uh, global health at uh, the Bel uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Priorly, uh, she worked for the US CDC as a senior medical epidemiologist and also in WHO, uh, Southeast Asia Regional Office. Uh, and she was focused on antimicrobial resistance and HIV drug resistance uh, surveillance and prevention programs respectively. Uh, Dr. Padmini uh, is uh, trained, uh, was trained in internal medicine in Cornell uh, University Medical Center and Infectious Diseases uh, at the University of California in San Francisco. Uh, please, Dr. Padmini, you have the floor. Thank you so much, uh, Daniela, and it's my pleasure to speak with all of you. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Um, as Daniela mentioned, my name is Padmini Shrikantaya. Uh, I lead the antimicrobial resistance strategy at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in Seattle. Um, I would like to thank the organizers for the opportunity to speak at the World Sepsis Congress, and it's my pleasure to share some thoughts today about emerging vaccine targets for sepsis in a global health setting. In the context of sepsis, I will focus on the most vulnerable populations where we at the Gates Foundation focus most of our efforts. In particular, I will start with neonatal mortality, where while maternal and child mortality have halved worldwide in the last two decades, the reduction in neonatal mortality has been slower and the number of neonatal deaths in low and middle income countries remains unacceptably high. In 2016, close to half or 46% of under five deaths occurred in the neonatal period, the first 28 days of life. When we dive further into the causes of neonatal death, we see that one quarter of neonatal deaths are due to infectious causes. 
These infections are causes of not only increased neonatal mortality and morbidity, but also can be causes of stillbirths, maternal morbidity and mortality, as well as excess hospitalizations. Increasingly, as I will show sh shortly, these infections are due to difficult to treat drug-resistant pathogens. For these reasons, our foundation's antimicrobial resistance strategy is focused on prevention overall with vaccines as a central pillar. This encompasses ongoing work on vaccine development and delivery that has been the mainstay of our global health work in enteric diseases, pneumonia, TB, HIV, and malaria. But the key focus of our AMR strategy is on prevention of neonatal sepsis, where we are most concerned about excess deaths due to drug-resistant pathogens. This work takes shape in two key pillars, evidence generation and surveillance to better understand etiologies, resistance patterns, outcomes, and burden of neonatal sepsis in low and middle-income countries. And the second is to use these data to inform product development efforts that are focused on prevention of these infections. The approaches include vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, microbiome-based approaches, and innovations in facility-based infection control. For today's talk, I will focus on our interest in vaccines, which is, of course, also our primary interest. So from surveillance, what do we know about neonatal sepsis in low- and middle-income countries? A recent systematic review focused on Africa included 151 primarily facility-based studies from 26 countries, about half the studies included microbiological data, and these studies identified several key pathogens that accounted for an outsized proportion of infections. Chief among these are Staphylococcus aureus and group B streptococci among gram-positive pathogens, and Klebsiella pneumoniae and Escherichia coli, or E. coli, among gram-negative pathogens. The investigators further compared etiologies reported in an earlier time period between 1980 and 2007 to those identified between 2008 and 2018, and notably high levels of antibiotic resistance, particularly to first-line empiric treatment for neonatal sepsis, was widely detected in this later time period. For this reason, the high prevalence of AMR highlights, of course, the need for access to effective antibiotics for these vulnerable populations. And we can all certainly agree with that need. In the long run, however, the deployment of new antibiotics always carries the risk of the development and emergence of resistance to newer therapies. Indeed, the time between deployment of a new antibiotic and the first documented failure of this treatment in humans due to resistance is much shorter for antibiotics than it is for vaccines, which can be frequently utilized for years and decades and confer effective pr uh, protection. This rationale further supports our focus on vaccines, particularly in the context of antimicrobial resistance. I will focus now on two pathogens that are vaccine targets for neonatal sepsis at the Gates Foundation. Both were frequently identified in the systematic review that I mentioned earlier, group B streptococcus and Klebsiella pneumoniae. In both cases, the, uh, in both cases, the vaccine approach of interest is a maternal vaccine. Maternal immunization, for, for those who may not be familiar, is a strategy of vaccination of pregnant women to provide protection to the mother, fetus, and inf infant through transplacental transfer of immunity. 
This is, of course, widely utilized in maternal neonatal uh, 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 maternal vaccination for tetanus. First, in the case of group B streptococcus, over 20 million women each year are colonized with GBS, pregnant women, and this colonization places women at greater risk for maternal death, is responsible for close to 60,000 stillbirths each year, over 300,000 cases of GBS, sepsis, and meningitis with almost 100,000 infant deaths, as well as increased risk for long-term sequelae. We know that maternal colonization of, with group B streptococcus is associated with increased risk for illness, both in the mother and then in the, in the infant. We further know that there are key group B streptococcus capsular serotypes, namely, of course, serotype three as the most dominant serotype um, that is detected globally, that colonizes a large proportion of pregnant women and is responsible for a large proportion of maternal and neonatal group B streptococcus disease. Indeed, a pentavalent vaccine focusing on at least five serotypes of GBS would cover the great majority of GBS disease in both mothers and infants. And perhaps most importantly, we know that a maternal anti-GBS capsular antibody directed at these capsular polysaccharides can confer protection. And that has actually been demonstrated for multiple decades. Thus, there is now an active GBS vaccine development pipeline. And the, indeed, this table on this slide is now outdated. And some of these candidates have met barriers and some of these other candidates have now further advanced to clinical phase. Importantly, the vaccine development pipeline has been guided by the WHO Group B Streptococcus Vaccine Development Roadmap, as well as their preferred product characteristics for a Group B Streptococcus vaccine that, if successful, would have the potential to res result in significant reduction in stillbirths and early neonatal disease and death. In our last few minutes, I would like to focus uh, to another priority pathogen, Klebsiella pneumoniae, which is a leading etiology of neonatal sepsis and deaths after the first 24 hours of life. The Child Health and Mortality Prevention Surveillance Platform, or CHAMPS, is funded by the Gates Foundation and works to collect clinical data, conduct verbal autopsies, perform laboratory tests for multiple pathogens, and examine tissue samples with both molecular and pathology techniques um, and use these data to determine the specific causes of death in infants and children at sites in seven countries in Africa and Asia. Among neonates, Klebsiella in, in the uh, evaluation of, of these combined data in, in deceased neonates, Klebsiella is determined to be in the causal chain of a rather astounding 44% of infectious deaths and is in the causal chain of almost 30% of all cause neonatal deaths occurring on days two to 28 of life. Uh, Klebsiella, unlike group B streptococcus, is not detected so frequently in the first 24 hours of life and is a negligible uh, cause of stillbirths, but does account for an increasing and rather alarming proportion of late onset sepsis deaths. This has turned our attention to Klebsiella as a potential maternal vaccine target. As an encapsulated organism, Klebsiella also has both capsular K antigens and subcapsular O antigens. 
Five of the nine identified O antigen serotypes account for almost all neonatal sepsis cases for which we have serotype data globally. But capsular K antigens may differentially impact the accessibility to, of antibodies to effectively target these subcapsular O antigens. Our current analysis of serotype epidemiology suggests that 15 to 20 K serotypes may account for up to 80% of sepsis cases, neonatal sepsis cases, and a high valency O plus K antigen approach, uh, conjugate vaccine approach may be one to consider. Compared to group B streptococcus, we're at a much earlier stage with Klebsiella. And one of the key questions to which we are actively seeking an answer is whether maternal antibodies as, that are serotype specific to Klebsiella pneumoniae against capsular uh, antigens confer protection. Uh, and we hope that we will uh, be able to support the generation of data to answer this question in the coming uh, several months to year. So in conclusion, I would like to um, uh, underscore how neonatal sepsis continues to be an important contributor to mortality globally, and particularly in low and middle income countries. This, these sepsis cases are frequently due to drug resistant pathogens such as that seen in Klebsiella pneumoniae. But sepsis is associated with high mortality even in the absence of resistance, such as in the case of group B streptococcus, and all of this underscores the importance of prevention. Maternal vaccines are a key area for investigation and hold potential for prevention of etiologies of stillbirth as well as early and late onset sepsis. And we hope that this prevention approach can allow infants to not only survive, but remain on a trajectory of growth and resilience rather than that of vulnerability. I will stop there and thank you for your attention and I'm happy to take questions. Thank you, Dr. Padmini for the great presentation. Uh, I, uh, I encourage uh, all the participants to, to ask questions using the, the chat box. Uh, I see a lot of uh, uh, nice uh, remarks <laughs> regarding the presentation. Meanwhile, uh, waiting for uh, the question, I will ask you, uh, you, you spoke about, uh, it's very interesting for me as a clinician about this possibility to vaccinate the, the, the pregnant uh, women uh, and to, to decrease the uh, neonatal sepsis. And you spoke about the uh, vaccines against uh, Streptococcus and Klebsiella, but you showed us that more uh, germs are uh, associated with neonatal sepsis. So there are other uh, uh, vaccines for other um, uh, germs uh, on the pipeline. And uh, do you think that in the future we'll have one uh, combined for uh, for all uh, uh, these germs, not to, to have different uh, vaccines? Yeah, thank you, Daniela, for that question. Um, I think you're right in pointing out that, of course, targeting a couple of pathogens doesn't uh, address all of the, the, the etiologies of neonatal sepsis and related deaths. Um, however, vaccine development, I think, is a, uh, um, is, is a um, long uh, journey and an important and a, and a long investment. And so um, we have arrived at, at focusing on these particular pathogens because of the significant burden of, of disease, particularly in the case of Klebsiella for late onset sepsis accounting for such a high proportion of disease and deaths. We believe that uh, a, a pathogen focused approach can really make a difference. 
Uh, and similarly, in the case of group B streptococcus, particularly considering stillbirths and very early onset sepsis, not to mention the potential protection for moms themselves. For other pathogens, I think it's a, it's a, a high bar to, um, to hope for a multi-pathogen vaccine approach. Um, but uh, certainly something that I know uh, would, be, uh, would be an ideal. Um, in the meantime, I think uh, I want to draw attention to some of the other approaches that are both pathogen specific as well as pathogen agnostics. Um, in pathogen specific approaches, there are the potential for not only vaccines, uh, where we have to be uh, uh, taken into consideration not only the development timeline, the biological feasibility, the cost, as well as the uh, implementation uh, challenges of, of delivering uh, multiple vaccines to moms in pregnancy. Um, uh, so the, the other uh, potential to consider is um, uh, immunizing infants, passive immunization of infants at birth with uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies. Um, there again, I think we have to be uh, careful to consider which pathogens might be appropriate, um, uh, appropriate uh, targets um, where uh, this is a pathogen that may cause later onset sepsis and where targeting a, a specific epitope uh, as a monoclonal antibody might do would still confer broad protection. Um, and then finally, I'll just mention that there are also pathogen agnostic approaches. Um, so uh, um, for example, um, the microbiome-based approaches, which, um, which I think Lisa will be talking about, um, which uh, are, are not uh, targeted at one specific pathogen. And I think a combination of these approaches will, will be necessary to truly make an impact. Uh, thank you. Now we have more questions. I will take uh, one. There were in fact two related to how, uh, when uh, will be these uh, vaccines available? You spoke about the uh, vaccine for uh, Streptococcus and uh, Klebsiella. So are there used in some countries? So no, unfortunately not. These are all very, still very much in development. Group B Streptococcus vaccine development is currently in clinical phase. Um, so we would hope if, if the vaccine development pipeline is successful that, uh, that we may see vaccine uh, deployment in the coming uh, five to 10 years. At Klebs for Klebsiella, this is very much still at a preclinical stage. Uh, and, and as I mentioned, we still need, while we have compelling data to guide us uh, to believe that Klebsiella is a, um, is a worthwhile vaccine target because of burden of disease, we still need to generate the appropriate biological feasibility and plausibility data that anti-capsular antibodies would confer protection um, to the infant. So uh, I think the timeline for a Klebsiella vaccine would still be on the order of at least a decade, um, hopefully faster, but, but I, it's not something that is uh, in current clinical use. And how early in the, it's, this is a very interesting question, how early in the pregnancy we have to use these vaccines? Right. No, that's a very good question. So for, um, for groupies, for some of these pathogens, usually the, the targeted time period for maternal vaccination will be in the third trimester, early in the third trimester of pregnancy. So many of these vaccines are targeted between 28 and 34 or 36 weeks of gestational age, um, when we also expect that the transplacental transfer of antibodies will, will also be um, greatest but still allow for, for maturation of antibodies, generation of antibodies, and then uh, uh, time enough for transfer to the infants. 
Uh, another question, and I, I wanted also to put this question. Uh, do you think this is uh, a future also for adult sepsis to use uh, vaccines? Uh, I, I'm asking, uh, it was a question put by the participants, but we struggle here in this part of the world, in eastern part of Europe, sometimes with Klebsiella uh, in, in the perioperative period, and I'm I'm interested to know if in the future you think yeah. we'll have some uh, uh, this tool to vaccinate uh, uh, perioperatively people yeah. to, to prevent uh, sepsis. That's a very, very good question. And actually, uh, I will say, especially for Klebsiella pneumonia and other multidrug resistant pathogens, um, while we at the foundation are focused, of course, on the vulnerable uh, neonates in low middle income countries, these same pathogens are, of course, causing sepsis in. Uh, in both high and low middle income countries in adult populations, particularly among those who are getting surgeries or have uh, uh, long-term uh, stays in, in both uh, acute facilities as well as long-term care facilities. And so there are other active vaccine development efforts for Klebsiella that are more focused on these populations. Uh, um, and, and I think ideally, we would see that the serotype epidemiology for Klebsiella is similar both in the neonates as well as in the adult populations. And then there would be uh, a global and dual market use for, uh, for a potentially effective vaccine. Thank you, Dr. Padmini, for the, the presentation. And I thank all the participants for the questions. There are more questions, but unfortunately, we have to move on. I hope that you'll have uh, the opportunity after the meeting to, to see these questions and to, to post uh, uh, answers to, to uh, the questions I didn't uh, uh, read during the, the meeting. So thank you again. And uh, it's my great pleasure to uh, introduce the next speaker, who is uh, Dr. Matthias Pletz, uh, professor for infectious disease uh, and the head of the Institute for Infectious Diseases and uh, Infection Control of the University Hospital in Vienna, uh, Germany. Uh, Professor Pletz is also the deputy director of the German Competence Network for Community Acquired Pneumonia, a member of the board of uh, directors of the German Society for Infectious Diseases and the German Sepsis Society, and he's also scientific uh, advisor for the German Robert Koch uh, Institute uh, and a member of the review board of the German Research Foundation and the Swiss uh, uh, National Research Foundation. Uh, Professor Pletz, uh, uh, you have the floor. Yeah, thank you, Daniela, for the kind introduction. Dear colleagues, I want to start right away. I want to talk about preventing influenza by improved vaccines, formulations, and post-exposure antivirals. I want to talk about three topics. First of all, I want to draw your attention that influenza is actually an underestimated healthcare-associated pathogen, and that we can prevent it by improved vaccines and particularly post-exposure antivirals. And I think this is something that is currently underused in clinical practice. We all know that influenza can cause pneumonia and pneumonia is the most frequent focus in sepsis. However, most of us associate influenza with community-acquired pneumonia. And in fact, most of the major guidelines on hospital-acquired pneumonia don't even mention influenza. And I think this is just wrong. And here you can see the results of a study we did in our own hospital in the flu season 2014-2015. We analyzed all the ordered PCR tests for flu 
And you can see we had a positivity rate of about 25%, which is actually quite high and which would mean that we have actually ordered too few PCR tests. And one third of those positive tests was caused by a hospital acquired influenza. And you can see that we have been very restrictive. You all know the definition of hospital acquired means everything that occurs 48 hours after admission. The longest incubation time for influenza is 96 hours. And even using this very restrictive definition, we found that one third of the influenza cases was hospital acquired and the case fatality rate was the same as community acquired. And this has at least reshaped the German recommendation the guideline for hospital-acquired pneumonia. And we have now the wording that routine testing with, for patients with hospital-acquired pneumonia should also be done for influenza, particularly for those on the ICU during the flu season. So what can we do to prevent influenza? And I think we are currently all spoiled when it comes to vaccines with the results of the COVID vaccines with 90%, 95%, or even 80% efficacy or effectiveness. Here you can see the requirements of regulatory authorities regarding the license of new influenza vaccines. And they state that 70% zero protection rate for those under 65 is enough for a new vaccine and 60% for those over 65 years. You know, it's harder to get a good antibody response in the elderly. That's why you have this slight difference. So, Influenza vaccines are far from perfect and are inferior if we compare it, for instance, to the COVID vaccines. However, there have been some um, approaches to improve the immunogenicity and the effectiveness of influenza vaccines, particularly in the elderly and immunocompromised. One is adjuvanted vaccines like MF59. Uh, the idea of the adjuvants is that it will increase the recruitment of dendritic cells to the site of injection. Then there is an intradermal application by a microinjector. You can see it here, very short needle. The idea is basically the same. You inject the antigen into the dermis, and in the dermis we have an increased density of dendritic cells and a better presentation of the antigen. But for those two approaches, we have just data that they increase the antibody levels. The only approach where we have also clinical data is the high-dose approach. High-dose vaccines contain the fourfold amount of the standard vaccines. And there are indeed two New England papers. One is from 2014, the other from 2017. And they compared high-dose vaccines with standard-dose vaccines, and you could see that the high-dose vaccine decrease the breakthrough infections by roughly 30%. So from 1.9 to 1.4 in this study and from 3.2 to 2.2 in the more recent study. Finally, and this is the main topic of my talk, I want to talk about post-exposure antivirals. But before I talk about antivirals, briefly one slide about the effects of so the so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, that is universal masking, distancing, and proper ventilation. And I think you all noticed that this time we didn't have any flu season. These are data from the Southern Hemisphere. You know, in the Southern Hemisphere, the flu season is between April and September. 
And in those six countries mentioned here, there was no flu season at all. And the same we see currently in the Northern Hemisphere. And this just proves how effective non-pharmaceutical measures can be. However, what do we do when we have an outbreak in a healthcare setting? And I said in the beginning that the opportunity of antiviral prophylaxis is underused, despite that there are recommendations to consider this. And this is the WHO recommendation for flu outbreaks in long-term care facility. And it states that antiviral prophylaxis should be considered and decision for residents should be based on risk assessment, clinical judgment, and outbreak severity. However, still many physicians are reluctant when it comes to oseltamivir, the neuraminidase inhibitor, because it has the image uh, of side effects combined with low effectiveness. And we know that if you give it late, then the effectiveness will decrease. However, in post-exposure prophylaxis, you usually give it very early, even before symptoms occur. And we have done a meta-analysis and you can see that the effectiveness is actually 80 to 100% if you use it in the post-exposure setting. And this corresponds to a number needed to treat of eight to 15 patients to prevent one case of influenza. The question is now how to use those antivirals as a post-exposure prophylaxis. And my personal experience um, is that they work actually best if you give it to everyone on the ward. If you have an outbreak on the ward, you can try to trace individual patients back, confirm the contact with the index case, and use it only in selected patients. However, this usually does not really terminate the outbreak. And I was quite happy when I prepared this talk to find this report from the Czech Republic. So they compared three nursing homes with, they were comparable regarding size and residence, and there were three outbreaks of influenza. And all the measures were the same except for the antiviral prophylaxis strategy. So in one nursing home, they just used oseltamivir for treatment, and the other, they used it also for prophylaxis in selected residents. And in the first nursing home, they used it after they could not contain the outbreak with non-pharmaceutical interventions for everyone, also for non-vaccinated staff members. And you can see that the outbreak was terminated very early when you used the oseltamivir broadly in residents and non-vaccinated staff members. And this actually mirrors the experience what I made in my own hospital. However, oseltamivir is also not the perfect drug, even if it works better in a post-exposure setting than in treatment. And there is a new drug now available called baloxavir. And baloxavir has a different mechanism of action. You can see here the influenza virus enters the host cell it releases its RNA, the RNA is replicated, the virus is assembled, and then you have the budding process. And the last step of the budding process, the virus is attached to the host cell by neuramine. And the task of the neuraminidase is actually to cut this connection and release the virus. And this step is inhibited by oseltamivir. So it works quite late in the replication cycle. Baloxavir is different. Baloxavir works early in the replication cycle after the RNA is released of the virus. It needs a start cap. And the start cap 
it snatches from a cellular, from the host, uh, host RNA. And this step, cutting the start ending from the host RNA and assembling it to the viral RNA is inhibited by baloxavir. And baloxavir has also other advantages. It's shown in vitro that it's much more effective than osiltamivir. And also in clinical studies, it has been shown that it terminates the viral shedding already after 24 hours compared to three days for osiltamivir. And it has also good activity against influenza B. On top of this, it has also a better safety profile. In one uh, phase three study, the, the side effects were basically the same as placebo. And it has a very long half-life and needs to be given only once. And so this all together makes it the ideal drug for post-exposure prophylaxis, low side effects given only once, acting against influenza B and terminates shedding already after 24 hours. And in fact, a couple of months ago, there was a study in the New England Journal testing this indication. It was a multi-centric RCT in Japan and 70, 52 household contacts, including children. Actually, most of the participants were children between 12 and 18 years. Of 545 index patients were enrolled. Baloxavir was given once, mainly after 24 hours after the case of the index person was known. And you can see that the secondary transmissions in the household were significantly decreased from 13.6 to 1.9%. And this corresponds to an odds ratio of 0.14, so a decrease of secondary infections by 86%. And if you look in detail into the graph, you can see that most of the remaining infections in the baloxavir arm actually occurred after the fifth day. And I think this was a mistake in the design of the study because when we use oseltamivir for prophylaxis, we give it for instance for 10 days, and baloxavir is also working with the long half-life for five days. So it should have actually be given a second time after five days. And then I assume there would be almost no secondary transmissions. So to sum up, I've shown you that influenza is an underestimated healthcare associated pathogen. You should actively search for influenza during the flu season, also in hospital acquired pneumonia. I've shown you that current standard vaccines are only moderately effective, but we have high dose vaccines that are now available in Europe and they have been available in the US already for a decade. And they can decrease the breakthrough infections by one third, particularly in the elderly. I've shown you that post-exposure prophylaxis of antivirus is highly effective measure to terminate outbreaks in the healthcare setting. And compared to oseltamivir, this is currently the gold standard for post-exposure prophylaxis, the novel baloxavir may be a better tolerated option for post-exposure prophylaxis. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Professor Platz, for the wonderful presentation. Very interesting. Uh, we have some questions. Uh, uh, do you think that the future vaccines combining uh, SARS-CoV-2 spike protein or RNA sequence with respective influenza virus constituents would be possible and useful? Actually, I hope that this will be the case because I think the RNA vaccine platforms are just perfect. You can change them very quickly. You can change actually the RNA sequence on the computer and the production of the vaccine is also a chemical process. You do not need to cultivate virus and to, to harvest virus. 
which is always prone to risk. As we have seen with AstraZeneca, sometimes they have problems to deliver. So this is a purely chemical process that can be controlled very nicely. And I, I've heard that you can add up to three different antigens into the RNA sequence. And I think this would made it a perfect vaccine combined influenza, SARS-CoV-2, and maybe even RSV. But the future will show. Thank you. There is another question about the resistance, if there is any resistance known to baloxavir. Yeah, that's a good question indeed. There is resistance to baloxavir. However, we do not really know if this is clinically relevant at the moment. Uh, resistance in viruses is different compared to resistance in bacteria. Resistance can evolve quickly. However, most resistant viruses um, have a decrease in biological fitness. That's why the involvement of resistance is usually not as clinically relevant as for bacteria. Thank you. And uh, there is a question. Do you think there is a link between bacterial equilibrium immunity after vaccination uh, and virus? Uh, uh, it's a difficult question. I do not know yes. if I got it, got it right. <laughs> um, the, only, the only thing what you can say is that um, the microbiota, this is known, um, has also an impact, for instance, on the response of the vaccine. So I think I've seen data, if you treat um, patients with antibiotics and you vaccinate them afterwards, then sometimes the vaccine response is decreased. So there is an interplay between the microbiota and the response to viruses as well. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Pletz, for the presentation and uh, thank you for the questions and answers. Uh, uh, unfortunately, we have to move on. It was a very interesting discussion. We have to move on and I have a great pleasure to uh, introduce a, a third uh, speaker. Uh, is Lisa Pell, uh, who is uh, currently a senior research associate at the Center for Global Child Health at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. Uh, she completed uh, in in Canada at the University of Toronto, a PhD in the Department of Biochemistry and a postdoctoral research fellowship in the Department of Molecular Genetics. Uh, please, Lisa, you have the floor. Thank you very much, Daniela, for the introduction. And thank you to the conference organizers for inviting me to speak today about symbiotics and sepsis prevention in neonates. So today I will briefly review the current evidence for probiotic and or symbiotic prevention for newborn sepsis. And I will also present an overview of what we call the sepsis study research platform, which has been established for the primary purpose of studying symbiotics for the prevention of severe infections during infancy. Now, there is a growing body of evidence towards the role of probiotics and or symbiotics for the prevention of newborn sepsis. To ensure that we're all on the same page with respect to terminology, um, probiotics are live microorganisms that when administered in adequate amounts confer a health benefit to the host. Symbiotics are probiotics mixed with a prebiotic agent or a non-digestible agent that selectively promotes growth and or activity of probiotic bacteria. Now, recent meta-analyses have shown that probiotics significantly reduce the risk of late onset sepsis in preterm, very low birth weight infants with effect sizes ranging from 14 to 22%. 
In considering these results, it's very important to note the great deal of heterogeneity in the intervention type used between studies. So some of these studies explored the effect of a single probiotic, while others explored the effect of a mixture of different probiotics. And overall, a, a large variety of different species and strains have been explored. For these reasons, it's very difficult to provide a definitive recommendation as to the best probiotic strain or mixture of strains that would be most effective in reducing late onset sepsis. Now, if we take a step back and look at individual study results from three of the larger clinical trials run to date, heterogeneity in the intervention type administered, it persists and the results we find are mixed. So for instance, on the left-hand panel in the PRO-PREMS trial, which was conducted in Australia and New Zealand, they administered a cocktail of three different probiotics to infants that were less than 32 weeks gestational age and less than 1500 grams at birth. Overall, they found no significant effect on late onset sepsis compared to the placebo group. However, in a subgroup analysis that was restricted to infants greater than or equal to 28 weeks gestation, there was a 49% reduction in late onset sepsis compared to the placebo group. Now, by contrast, in the PIPS trial on the right-hand panel, which was conducted in England, they administered a single strain probiotic to preterm infants, and they found no effect of the probiotic on culture-confirmed sepsis in the intervention group, again, compared to the placebo. Um, interestingly, they reported contamination in the placebo group, such that about 50% of newborns in the placebo group were actually colonized with the same type of probiotic bacteria as was administered to infants in the intervention group. Now, in contrast to these two trials, between 2008 and 2012, Panagrahi et al. conducted a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial in rural India in which they orally administered a symbiotic which contained Lactobacillus plantarum, strain ATCC202195, plus fructooligosaccharide for seven consecutive days, starting on day two to four of life, to infants who were greater than 2,000 grams at birth and greater than 35 weeks gestation. All of these infants enrolled in the study were followed prospectively until 18 months of age, and the study's primary outcome was a composite outcome of sepsis or death within 60 days of life. Now the findings, which were published in Nature in 2017, August, um, were quite striking. They found a significant 40% reduction in their composite outcome of sepsis or death. However, there were, there were very few deaths reported in the study. So this effect was um, entirely driven by an effect on sepsis. They also reported a 78% reduction in culture positive sepsis, a 47% reduction in culture negative sepsis, and a 34% reduction in lower respiratory tract infections. So not surprisingly, this study garnered a great deal of attention. 
And it ultimately led to the motivation behind the symbiotics for the early prevention of severe infections in infant study or sepsis study for short. The overarching aim of the sepsis study is to actually develop an adaptive clinical trial research platform in Dhaka, Bangladesh that can be used to assess the safety and efficacy of promising probiotic and or symbiotic interventions for the prevention of severe infection and death in young infants, as well as the promotion of growth and effects on other infant health outcomes of interest. Ultimately, this infrastructure will enable the testing of any intervention to prevent neonatal sepsis and will allow us to conduct a high fidelity replication of the Panagrahi et al. clinical trial that was conducted in India in order to extend the generalizability of their findings to another setting. Now we've received funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to launch up to five different studies within the sepsis study research platform, including an observational study, a phase two L plantarum trial, a phase three L plantarum trial, which will act as that replication of the Panagrahi et al study. We also have funding to launch up to two B. infantis trials. However, the decision as to whether these two studies will proceed depends on results that will be generated in earlier studies within the platform. Now, while each project within the platform has its own set of specific aims, consistencies do exist in how the various projects will be implemented across the research platform. And of particular relevance to this topic, some of those consistencies include the routine surveillance system for detecting clinical severe infection, our methods for ascertaining or confirming the presence of clinical severe infection, the pathways for triggering septic workup, as well as the definitions that we use for severe infection. Now, signs of possible clinical severe infection, or CSI for short, um, in our study can be detected at routinely scheduled in-person household visits, so conducted in the community by community health research workers, or at any time in between any scheduled visit by a phone call from a caregiver to a study worker. Detection of any sign of CSI will trigger a referral of that infant to the nearest study hospital for further assessment by a study medical officer. A case of CSI is confirmed when one of um, six signs of CSI, including poor feeding, lethargy, convulsions, severe chest indrawing, fever, or hypothermia, are documented by a study medical officer and the treating physician actually confirms that there is sufficient general concern for sepsis or a serious bacterial infection to warrant a septic workup. In cases where the treating physician agrees that there is concern for sepsis or SBI, septic workup is triggered, which includes the collection of blood, a nasal swab, urine, stool, and if clinically indicated, um, CSF sample uh, and or skin swab. If an infant bypasses our study surveillance system, such that a treating physician actually clinically diagnoses sepsis or SBI, 
and prescribes one or more doses of parental antibiotics before assessment by a study medical officer. That infant may still be considered to have CSI and pending timing and clinical features, septic workup may still be facilitated by the study team. Now, all of this information will be used to define severe infection by 60 days postnatal age, which when combined with death within the first 60 days will be the primary outcome in the outplantarum phase three trial, so that replication study, and a key secondary outcome in other studies that are being implemented within the research platform. Now we've defined severe infection as at least one of those six signs of CSI that were mentioned on a previous slide, documented by a physician and or a physician diagnosis of sepsis or another SBI, and then at least one of the two following criteria, physician decision to admit to hospital, um, administration of at least one dose of parental antibiotics on the day when CSI is first ascertained, and treatment or physician intention to treat with parental antibiotics for at least five days, or um, blood and or CSF culture positive for a pathogenic organism. Now, this presentation has meant to provide you essentially with an idea of what's coming, or in other words, what we have planned, and more specifically, our approach towards detecting and defining cases of CSI and severe infection in a series of symbiotic and or probiotic trials. Now at present, the only study that has launched within the platform is the observational study, which launched in February of 2020. We've enrolled close to 800 of the anticipated 3000 participants. And unfortunately, enrollment has had to be paused twice now due to the COVID-19 pandemic. We plan to launch the first L-Plantarum trial in July of this year. And given that the sample size is only about 500 participants, we expect to complete enrollment in about two months time. And after completion of enrollment into that phase two trial, we will be able to seamlessly transition towards launching the phase three L-Plantarum replication trial um, due to the nature of this adaptive platform we've built. Now, before I conclude, um, I'd like to acknowledge the large group of investigators spanning multiple institutions in Bangladesh, Canada, and the United States, um, and the principal investigator on this study, Dr. Daniel Roth at the Hospital for Sick Children in Canada. I'd also like to acknowledge all sepsis study staff and participants, without whom none of this would be possible, and of course, support for this work from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. At this time, I'd be happy to take any questions you may have. Thank you, Lisa, for the very interesting uh, presentation. Uh, yes, there are some uh, questions. Uh, one was related to the studies you presented, if uh, um, they considered the, the mode of uh, delivery, if uh, there were uh, normal vaginal uh, delivery or C-sections. Um, yeah, so that is a really important uh, factor to consider because mode of delivery can influence the um, uh, the microbiome of the infant, which is, of course, what these interventions target. 
So in the systematic reviews, the outcomes were, um, in none of the systematic reviews that I presented, the outcomes were not disaggregated by mode of delivery, but that is certainly um, one of many factors that can influence a probiotic's effectiveness. And I will say in the studies that we have planned, um, we, we have planned our sample sizes in a way that will allow us to do subgroup analyses based on uh, mode of delivery. Uh, I have a question about the safety. Do we have data about the safety of using uh, symbiotics? I, I mean, do and also we have to know the microbiota of uh, the neonates in the region to, to adapt uh, which kind of uh, symbiotic we have to use? Yeah, thanks for that question. It's an excellent question. So in terms of safety, probiotics are um, generally regarded as safe. And uh, as an example, in the L. plantarum trial that was conducted in India, there were, there were no cases of um, uh, probiotic sepsis within that study. And uh, no, uh, very few adverse reactions. There were a few um, uh, cases of gastrointestinal uh, distension, but no serious adverse events linked to the probiotic. Um, and your second question, Daniela, regarding the microbiome is an, an important one. And it's, it's actually part of the reason we planned our study the way we did. So we start, as I mentioned, we're starting with an observational study. And one of, the, one of the primary aims of that study will actually allow us to better understand the baseline microbiome in this population and will help to inform, um, so I mentioned whether or not we proceed with a B. infantis trial, for example. So it may turn out if the absolute and relative abundance of B. infantis is very high in this population, it may suggest that that may not be the most appropriate uh, probiotic to use in a, in a future study. Thank you so much. There are uh, more questions. I, I still hope that uh, there will be some possibility to, to see afterwards the, this question and to post some uh, answers. Thank you, Lisa, for the presentation and we have to move on. And the <coughs> next uh, speaker is Dominique Misiakas, uh, who is a professor of microbiology and the director of the Howard T. Uh, Ricketts Laboratory, a regional biocontainment laboratory for infectious diseases research at the University of uh, Chicago. She also is a co-founder uh, of the Immune Arts uh, with Olaf Schneewind in an effort to develop therapeutics and vaccines against uh, Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, please, uh, uh, Professor Misiakas, you have the floor. Thank you. Um, I hope you can hear me well. Thank you for this introduction, Daniela. And I want to thank the organizer for the opportunity to present our work on staff aureus and describe the development of therapeutic antibodies to treat bloodstream infections with staph aureus. As a brief introduction, staph aureus infections are caused by both uh, methicillin-sensitive and methicillin-resistant staph aureus strains. They may be hospital-acquired, um, and or community acquired. In hospital settings, staff infections account for about one to three of hospital admissions. They include surgical patients in dwelling catheters, 
um, ICU patients, mechanical ventilation, and including low birthway neonates and uh, neonates, which would be the topic that I will discuss today. So I think infections are not restricted to at-risk populations such as immunocompromised, aging, or the very young. They also affect healthy humans. Um, the highest risk for infection that we know is colonization, and about 30% of the human population is colonized, uh, 2% of which is attributed to MRSA, the antibiotic resistance form. Um, skin soft tissue infection represent the most common form of infection, followed by bloodstream and lower respiratory tract infections. And uh, even with surgical and antibiotic therapies, that bacteremia infection can reoccur. Um, staff RS deploys uh, many virulence factors to cause disease. However, our group and our work has shown that staphylococcal protein A is, a key, is key to immune evasion. And this factor, protein A, is found in both methicillin-sensitive and methicillin-resistant strains. So if this is Staphylococcus in yellow here, Staphylococcus protein A is exposed on the surface, and it has two activities represented to the white. It binds immunoglobulin in the constant region of the FC region, as well in the FAB uh, region of immunoglobulins, in particular of the VH3 clan. That is the, the conserved region that is normally forming the scaffold for antigen epitope binding. When, um, when SPA binds the constant region of immunoglobulin on the surface of the bacteria, this process blocks opsonization opson and uptake by phagocytes. When SPA binds, is released also by the bacterium and, is, and it binds um, the B cell receptor of BH type, which is represents about 50% of B cell in humans. It leads to the activation of the cells uh, during infection and the production of BH3 type antibodies that are actually irrelevant for protection against staph. So this B cell superantigen activity provides a very unique mechanism of immune evasion. As I said, you can see in these microscopic images here that SPA is not only conserved amongst strains, but it's abundantly covering the surface of these bacteria. And importantly, it's polyimmunogenic, or uh, mammals actually cannot uh, uh, make antibodies against staphylococcus protein A. Staphylococcal protein A is a modular protein that's made of uh, five immu small immunoglobulin binding domain. Each one of them has its almost three uh, alpha helices that fold in a small triple helical um, alpha bundle that can simultaneously bind the FC gamma of the fab region of antibodies. One can introduce four amino acid substitutions, two in red and two in, in green. The two in red will prevent FC binding to antibodies, and the two in green, the FAB binding to antibodies. As a consequence, you generate a non-toxigenic SPA variant. This non-toxigenic SPA variant can be used to immunize mammals and generate neutralizing antibodies, or monoclonal antibodies, that can outcompete SPA binding to the FC region and promote opsonophagocytic killing of staph, as well as inhibit the VH3 fab binding, allowing the host to make polyclonal antibodies 
when exposed to staph. We have tested one such uh, monoclonal antibody, 3F6, in several models of infection in mice and guinea pigs, including bacteremia caused by staph uh, bloodstream infection. Here, I want to describe an animal model for the neonatal uh, staph bloodstream infection. In this model, newborn mice that are one day old are passively immunized with an isotype control of the 3F6 antibody. And then they are challenged on day two with MRSA. This leads to a blood room dissemination with about, in these experiments, 80% survival following treatment with 3F6 as compared to 35 to 40% survival without treatment or with isotype control. Now, six weeks later, if we take these surviving animals and we challenge them with a lethal uh, challenge of MRSA, 50% of animals that receive 3F6 as POPs survive, while zero survive in all other groups. Uh, they behave similarly to naive animals that were never exposed to staph. We attribute the clearance in adult mice not to the long-lived 3F6 antibodies, but rather to the neutralization of the B-cell superantigen activity of protein in POPs. This conclusion is supported by the observation of a broad antibody response depicted at the bottom here, where we see an increase in antibody against multiple virulence factor of staph listed on the x-axis and plotted as antibody fold increase following passive immunization with 3F6 as compared to isotype control. In POPs, we attribute survival to the opsonization of bacteria by 3F6, which promoted the uptake and the killing by phagocytic cell. To look further into this process, we developed an ex vivo model of bloodstream infection. For this model, we use freshly drawn adult blood or cord blood um, as a surrogate uh, for neonatal blood. In blood smears, we can see that staph is either taken up by neutrophil or agglutinating into fibrin clots. It's a process by driven by the pathogen through the secretion of coagulases. To measure bacterial replication in blood, what we do, we wash bacteria and incubate them at a multiplicity of infection of 10 bacteria to one neutrophil in the freshly drawn anticoagulated blood for an hour. And after one hour, cells are lysed with saponin and the cloths are digested with enzyme, these steps will release all staphylococci that have been plated for enumeration of viable bacteria as shown to, on the graph to the right. So I'm showing three code samples, M4, M5, and M6, and you can see the killing capacity in the gray bars is the survival or replication of bacteria as compared to 100% the initial inoculum, you could see that there is various um, ability to contain bacterial replication, and in general, Staphylococcus aureus replicates quite successfully. Addition of cytokalazin D in the grayer bar here, which is an actin polymerization inhibitor that blocks phagocytic uptake, shows further replication of bacteria. This Flex the intrinsic killing capacity of neutrophils in neonates or in the cord blood, which is comparable to what we have observed otherwise in adult, with adult neutrophils. 
addition of human uh, IgG3F6 antibody shown in light uh, blue or darker blue for a lower or higher concentration, as you can see, reduces as it leads to a significant reduction in bacterial replication. So this is in agreement with the notion that 3x6 antibody promotes the phagocytic uptake and killing of stuff in the bloodstream. In summary, we propose that the conserved surface protein, staphylococcal protein A, is an important immune evasion factor of staph. And we believe that, that therapeutic approaches based on antibodies against staph must take into account SPA and thus must neutralize staphylococcal protein. Phagocytes of humans, both adults and neonates, as modeled using cold blood, are able to take up staph, and we propose that the optional phagocytic uptake can be boosted by anti-SPA antibodies for the elimination of bloodstream staph bacteria. I will stop here and acknowledge contributors to this work. First and foremost, Olaf Schneewin, who initiated the studies on non-toxigenic SPA. Key contributor, past contributor in the laboratory at the University of Chicago and current contributors, in particular Zinai Chen, Paola Nol Bernardino. The original monoclonal antibodies were generated at the Fitch monoclonal facility at the University of Chicago, and we have an ongoing collaboration with Patrick Wilson to analyze immune responses in humans following bloodstream staph infection. Our work on SPA antibody has been funded for the last 10 years by NIAID and recent research with neonatal cold blood by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. I thank you kindly for your attention. Thank you very much for uh, this very interesting presentation, uh, Dr. Misiakas. Um, there are uh, some questions. One uh, is uh, regarding uh, your opinion about the recently published Staphylococcus aureus vaccine candidate. It's about the vaccine, uh, Staphylococcus aureus uh, vaccine. So if you have an opinion I suppose. I suppose we are referring to ISDB, which is a, a surface antigen, um, but uh, a protein that blocks iron uptake in staph aureus and that uh, failed. Probably it's a single antigen approach. Once again, it's a surface protein. So the antibody will compete with surface exposed protein A um, and, and might be neutralized by protein. And another question is about, uh, could the CF6 stop invasive uh, disease in humans? Yes, that is the goal. I will hope that's something that we would very much like to test. Oh, well, this is also my question. If in the future, uh, because I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist, I will treat my patients with staphylococcus mediatis, mediastinitis uh, with uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies against the staphylococcus. Yes. This is one yes. of the goals. That is one of the goals. I suppose that uh, it will have to be combined therapy with. Um, um, Anti antibiotics as well, but yes, during the bloodstream dissemination of staph, we believe that 3F6 antibodies can block replication, promote uptake, and killing of staph aureus. 
Thank you very much, uh, Professor Misiakas, for the presentations and thank you for presentation and thank you for the questions. We have to move uh, on, and I have the the pleasure to introduce the next uh, speaker, who is Dr. Christian Taylor, uh, who is um, uh, working in Pfizer vaccines. Uh, currently, he is acting as a global scientific affairs lead within the Vaccine Medical Development and Scientific Affairs Organization. And uh, previously, he worked as an assistant professor at the Albert Ludwig University in Freiburg and also at the University Medical Center Basel in uh, Switzerland as a senior staff uh, uh, physician in the Department of Infectious Diseases and Hospital uh, Epidemiology. Uh, please, Dr. Telaker, you have the floor. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for your nice introduction. So today I would like to talk about infections after splenectomy. And without further ado, I just want to mention, yes, I work for Pfizer uh, as my conflict of interest. Uh, I would like to uh, review for three slides uh, briefly the epidemiology of infections after splenectomy. So uh, against our intuition, uh, actually the incidence and the prevalence of a splenia and splenectomy is, is not that low. In fact, if you look at uh, the prevalence of uh, splenectomy or uh, splenia, this is somewhere between 50 and 100 in Europe, and that compares roughly um, to also the prevalence of HIV in the UK, for example, which is around 100, uh, 150 per 100,000. Uh, what has changed in recent years are the indications for splenectomy. It used to be that trauma is the dominating cause, uh, but now it's splenectomies uh, for uh, neoplastic surgery uh, and also for treatment of hematologic conditions such as ITB uh, or sickle cell disease uh, or thalassemia. Um, certainly, there are also underlying comorbidities which predispose to functional hypo or asplenia. Most uh, relevant is against sickle cell disease, but also, for example, celiac disease or inflammatory bowel disease. If we look at the risk for infection after splenectomy or in asplenia, it is certainly the interval since splenectomy with the two to three years post splenectomy uh, posing the a vulnerable period with highly increased uh, rate for severe infections. H is an important risk uh, modifier as shown on the right-hand side, where you see risk ratios compared to the reference category of 35 to 49 year olds. You can see that children clearly have an increased risk, especially in the category of non-hematologic malignancies. Um, there are also certain underlying illnesses that are associated with a very high risk of infection after splenectomy. And that is, for example, Morbus Hodgkin um, as a hematologic malignancy, also thalassemia or sickle cell disease. Previous episode, also strong predictor of increased risk and also some uh, case series indicating a highly increased risk in congenital asplenia. Another question uh, is what is the current uh, 
microbiologic etiology of sepsis. There's actually some conflicting data around that with some older case series dating back to the 1950s even that showed that it's mainly pneumococcus, but also hemophilus and meningococcus. And then more recent uh, uh, data showing that it's gram negative. So that was uh, basically uh, the level of information uh, that we reviewed in my former uh, workplace in Freiburg and decided, well, I think we need to do a prospective study to look how this lo is looking in today's world. And we did a, a prospective cohort study. We collected from all patients that we screened with sepsis and had a missing spleen. We collected microbiologic culture and antigen tests for pneumococcus. And we followed these patients up for 12 months. And in total, we were able to detect 52 OPSI cases. And as you can see on the right-hand side, the microbiology is very much in line to our uh, learnings from these old uh, uh, studies um, that basically it's the dominant cause is still pneumococcus, even though we now have uh, vaccination programs and children for pneumococcus and, and uh, changes in, in indications for splenectomy, it remains pneumococcus, that's the dominant cause. Uh, what we did not find, however, is any meningococcal infection, any H flu infection uh, was not identified, but with a relatively small sample size, uh, I have to admit. Okay, so probably uh, in uh, today's age, there is no talk that cannot have one slide on COVID. So I also was interested in splenectomy or as splenic states as a risk factor for COVID-19 infection. And I did find a very robust, large retrospective database study from the UK reviewing 17 million uh, patients. Um, and they found that basically there's no significant risk signal uh, with a hazard ratio of 1.3 in a splenic patients compared to uh, patients that have a spleen. And that's comparable to, for example, being male compared to being female for the risk of COVID-19 infection. So no truly increased uh, risk, um, also not significant uh, confidence intervals in this study. So what about uh, direct evidence for uh, effectiveness or efficacy of uh, pneumococcal vaccination in the prevention of pneumococcal disease in this target group? Well, there are no specific studies uh, that address this question, as there are, in fact, for uh, almost none of the um, immunocompromising conditions. What we have, however, is increasing evidence for impact. So we have, for example, uh, a very uh, nice study from uh, the US that documented with the uh, introduction of the seven valent conjugate vaccine in children with sickle cell disease in the US that there was a rate reduction of 93% to um, historic controls. We also have data from the Australia Spleen Register that with a multimodal intervention that also includes vaccination, uh, the rate of invasive pneumococcal, meningococcal, or uh, uh, hemophilus B disease was uh, significantly reduced by roughly 70%. And also the experience from my former workplace in Freiburg, where we had a similar study design, although monocentric, where we really uh, compared what is the pneumococcal infection risk in patients after they had received uh, an intervention that included also vaccination compared to 
if they hadn't. And we only found one case of pneumococcal infection compared to seven um, uh, non-vaccinated patients. So increasing evidence also that uh, vaccination does prevent pneumococcal disease. But I would like to uh, mention that um, this is not the only element of the prevention. Very important is patient education, uh, explaining uh, the infection risk, uh, giving alert cards, um, also antibiotic prophylaxis uh, to, to evaluate patients for antibiotic prophylaxis and provide them with standby um, antibiotics. Travel advice if they go to uh, uh, regions where malaria is endemic and uh, making patients aware that animal bites need uh, attention of a physician because of the risk of capnocytophaga infections, which can be quite severe in this patient population. So this is just an example how alert cards could look like. This is what we designed in Freiburg when I was still working there. And this, I think this is now the fifth edition. Similar uh, emergency cards are available also in many other countries. Um, timing of vaccination. Again, this is uh, not uh, uh, like super high level evidence, but there are some studies that do suggest uh, less than um, or, or lower immune responses in the immediate post-operative period. Um, however, you should not delegate uh, vaccination to the, out, uh, to the physician, to the GP, but gi rather give the vaccine before the patient leaves the hospitals, because uh, what we did uh, learn in our cohort studies, if you delegate, usually vaccines are not administered. Also, uh, you should avoid uh, periods of immunosuppression, especially rituximab can deplete your B cells for up to six months, uh, corticosteroids in interval for four weeks, and after chemotherapy, one to three months is recommended. If patients are chronically immunosuppressed, you probably want to uh, consider, even in adults, antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, the vaccine recommendations uh, you can see in this table are quite consistent, although there are some deviations uh, between countries when it comes to pneumococcal vaccination and meningococcal vaccination. So um, what I will show you in the next slide are those uh, recommendations where I also have been a part of uh, developing them together with uh, an expert group in Germany and the, uh, the STIKO, the Standing Committee of Vaccination Recommendations in Germany. So what uh, is recommended um, and for which we have stronger evidence to, uh, to recommend this is pneumococcal vaccination. Um, there, is some, there are some uncertainties um, in this vaccination um, regimen, how often you should give revaccinations with the polysaccharide vaccines. In Germany, we recommend this every six years. In the US, this is only recommended once. Also, strong evidence to uh, re recommend uh, meningococcal vaccines, uh, both against the serogroups ACWY and meninge B. Uh, some questions around revaccination with Baxir with the men B vaccine. Uh, and also, uh, the, in most countries, hemophilus influenza type B vaccination is recommended, as is influenza vaccination. One point I would like to make is that the pneumococcal, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine now does not cover 
any longer the most prevalent serotypes coverage is around 30%, but there are new developmental vaccines available because I work for one of the companies that produce these. I cannot actively talk about this until they are licensed, but you should need to know that there's a 15 valent and 20 valent conjugate vaccines that are in late stage clinical development and they will uh, come to market hopefully um, next year. Uh, antibiotic prophylaxis, there is no uh, evidence from clinical studies. This is all based on expert opinion. What experts uh, and also Cochrane are aligned on that children up to the year, uh, up to five years of age should receive prophylaxis. Those such as are shown here. For older children, probably three years for this immediate risk period should also be covered by prophylaxis. For adults, no consensus. We in Germany do not recommend it. And many other countries in Europe do not recommend it. UK, Australia, and I think also in the US, this is recommended, but compliance is low. What is important, I think more important for adults in my view, and many experts share this opinion, is that you uh, give patients standby antibiotics, that you also uh, tell them how to use it, and you renew their supplies when antibiotics are, uh, are expiring. And one last word on vaccination. So it's, it's fair to, uh, to recommend vaccines, but you need to make sure that vaccination recommendations are implemented. And this is just uh, one publication from our experience at, uh, in Freiburg, where we compared uh, patients that were just uh, vaccinated according to local recommendations, or if you uh, really uh, sent them to a dedicated, systematically to a dedicated outpatient clinic and, and give them vaccines, counsel them. And you can see that basically you can increase vaccination rates for all these vaccines that I have just shown you threefold. So compliance is, uh, is increased a lot if you really uh, have a system in place to implement your recommendations. And with that, I would like to close. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Telaker, for the very interesting uh, presentations. Uh, presentation. Um, I don't see uh, for the moment uh, uh, any question. Uh, I would like to ask you, in one of uh, your table, you uh, showed that uh, um, pro antibiotic prophylaxis and vaccination, I think so, uh, is recommended for uh, children and selected uh, uh, adult uh, patients. Uh, so what kind of adult patients you think uh, should receive uh, 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 prophylaxis. You mentioned uh, later that there are no recommendations in, oh. in Germany, but however, what uh, patients do you think need this uh, prophylaxis? Very, very good question. Again, this is expert, uh, expert opinion. Uh, what uh, we in Germany uh, had um, suggested for in our guidelines is that patients with a very high risk of infection, such as uh, stem cell transplant patients should receive antibiotic prophylaxis. Also patients with a previous episode of uh, OPSI, of overwhelming post-planectory infections, we would consider for antibiotic prophylaxis because we know that uh, secondary and, and tertiary infections are quite frequent. So it's really patients with a chronic, uh, highly immunocompromised state in, on top of the asbenia or patients that have already experienced a sepsis uh, episode. 
thank you. You you said that this is an expert opinion, so we don't have data uh, to know uh, how much by prevention and vaccination we uh, prevent infections in asplenic patients. So I've shown you the data from the uh, Victoria uh, Spleen Register, and there they had a reduction of roughly 70% uh, with this multimodal intervention of counseling, vaccination, antibiotic prophylaxis. Now, uh, if you look at this study in more detail, you will notice that uh, the, the periods are not quite comparable. There's a retrospective, there's a prospective arm. We had similar uh, problems in our own cohort study. So if it's 70% or a little bit more, a little bit less, that, that is, I think, not quite sure. But that there is an impact, I think uh, we, we are now increasingly uh, certain that this does prevent. We have a question from the audience. Do you recommend any vaccination available for COVID-19 for patients with uh, splenectomy? Yeah, so uh, I'd expected that question and I really looked at uh, different countries. I couldn't find much. Canada does recommend it, but all other uh, major recommending bodies like ACRP, like STICO, like JCVI in the UK, I could not find um, a reference to uh, this risk group. That doesn't mean it, it's not, it doesn't exist. Maybe I, I just didn't catch my attention. There's so much, uh, as you know, so much published these days on, on COVID, but I couldn't find any recommendations. I personally, I think they should be like, according to the overall age and uh, prioritization, uh, patients should be vaccinated. But uh, I think uh, splenectomy by itself at the moment of what we know, doesn't really um, pose an increased risk. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Telaker, for the presentation and discussion. So uh, we have to, to move on to the next uh, speaker. Before I introduce the next speaker, I would like to mention that uh, uh, session number six will uh, start at uh, in six, uh, seven minutes on another channel. So if you want to, to um, uh, go to the next uh, session, you can uh, do. We are a little bit uh, late. I'm sorry for this, uh, but I, I think it was a wonderful session and I have a great, great pleasure now to introduce uh, the last speaker of the session, uh, Professor Neta, uh, who um, is an infectious disease specialist and uh, uh, currently heading the Division of Experimental Medicine in the Department of Internal Medicine in Nijmegen University uh, and Medical Center in Netherlands. Uh, he uh, completed a PhD in Radboud University in Nijmegen and also Professor Neta is a member of the Netherlands Royal uh, Academy of Science. Uh, Professor Neta, you have the floor, please. Thank you very much uh, for, uh, for the introduction and thank you very much also to invite me. And um, I will like uh, to go directly to the, to the subject of my talk, which is repurposing known vaccines. Uh, this is something that I was uh, asked uh, to discuss in the, um, in the coming uh, 10 to uh, 15 minutes. And what do I mean by that? And I, I would like to start uh, to start my uh, my my talk with an epidemiological observation that was made almost almost hundred years ago. 
When the Vasil Kalmetgeren BCG, the vaccine against tuberculosis, was introduced in Sweden, uh, Dr. Carl Neslund, who was responsible for this uh, vaccination program, has observed that the mortality in the children vaccinated with BCG decreased after the introduction of, of vaccines from 11% to 4%. So a very important re reduction of, of childhood mortality. And that was before antibiotics were available. So a lot of children died of infections in those years. And that was not due to TB deaths because those were uh, less than uh, half of a percent in, in this population. So he made this uh, particular uh, observation and he said that probably BCG provokes a non-specific immunity. And this observation was made many times after the BCG was introduced in different countries. This is a systematic review from Higgins and colleagues in British Medical Journal in 2016, where he went through all the studies reporting, uh, reporting the observation of um, all-cause mortality in the children with or without BCG, observing that in the majority of them, BCG was protecting. And this led to the concept that BCG as a non, uh, as a live attenuated vaccine might have a non-specific protection uh, given against an infection. But how, how could that work? How is it possible that BCG can protect against something else than tuberculosis uh, itself? When we think at host defense against microorganisms, we have uh, innate immune responses and we have adaptive immune responses. And the immune, innate immune responses is what is happening uh, uh, in the first couple of hours and days after an infection. And this is supposed to be indiscriminate, non-specific, and lacking immunological memory. Whereas the TMB cells are the smart part of the immune system. They are induced specifically against the particular microorganisms and it's building immunological memory. And that is what we induce with our, uh, with our vaccines. However, what, it, what we have observed in the last years is that innate immune responses, the myeloid uh, 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 cell responses such as monocyte and macrophages can also be adaptive, can also be improved in their responsiveness. So for example, after BCG vaccination, when we isolate the monocytes from the circulation of the, of the vaccinated individuals, they respond better not only against mycobacterium tuberculosis, but they respond better against staphylococcus, candida albicans, and so on, in, against many other, uh, many other uh, uh, pathogens. So considering that, we ask ourselves, would it be possible that we can demonstrate in, vi in vivo, in a model of controlled infections in humans, that BCG can protect against another type of organisms, microorganism, and not only against my mycobacteria. And we did that by administering um, uh, healthy volunteers, either placebo or BCG, and thereafter, one month later, yellow uh, fever vaccine. Because yellow fever vaccine is an attenuated virus and we can follow it by doing a PCR in the blood. And on day five, when we have the maximum viremia in the blood, we have observed that the BCG vaccinated individuals had very strongly decreased viremia in their blood. So basically BCG was able to protect against a viral infection. Now, how is that working? And I will not go through all the molecular mechanisms uh, which, uh, which we described in the last uh, seven or eight years or so. But putting it very simple is what is happening is that at the level of the DNA, DNA is very strongly, uh, tightly packaged in the nucleus of, of a cell. 
And when a cell is activated, it is opening. There are chemical changes which take place in the chromatin, in the histones of the nucleosomes, which actually open the chromatin. When you read a book, you open it. That's exactly what the nucleus is doing when, when it needs to, uh, to induce gene transcription, is opening the chromatin. And we always thought that after the infection, the chromatin in the innate immune cells goes back to normal. And it actually does. It becomes closed again. But there are some bookmarks. There are some chemical changes in the histones which stay there as a bookmark. So the next time then, uh, uh, then uh, uh, the cell is stimulated and we need to produce proteins which are necessary for host defense, the DNA can open at the right place much easier. It's like putting, putting a bookmark and the next time you need the book, you open it much quicker. And that results actually upon the re-stimulation of these innate immune cells to a better immune response and protection. So we wanted to assess whether this is possibly to happen also in an in vivo situation with a concept that improving the innate immune response in the beginning, for example, by BCG vaccination, which will diminish the uh, pathogen load, the viral load, the bacterial load, and so on. With low pathogen load in the circulation, we would have low symptoms, low inflammatory, uh, uh, low systemic inflammation, and the individual will survive. Whereas if that is not present and we have low innate immune responses, there is high viremia, for example, or high bacteremia, inefficient systemic inflammation induced by this increased pathogen load, high severity, and death. And we performed a, a, a clinical trial in elderly individuals, and we randomized elderly uh, people either to receive a placebo or, or to receive a, a, a BCG vaccination. And after that, we followed them for one year for the induction, for, for susceptibility to infections. And what we have observed is that people vaccinated with BCG had significantly less infections, 40% less infections than the elderly vaccinated with, uh, with placebo. And the type of infections that were protected against by the BCG vaccination were especially respiratory tract infections, approximately 80% less respiratory, respiratory tract infections in BCG vaccinated individuals. So based on this, we have also looked whether other, uh, whether other uh, vaccines could induce also similar type of effects. And last year, we have done a study uh, looking at the, at the influenza uh, vaccination, whether it can induce also this long-term memory in innate immune responses, which we called trained immunity. And indeed, we observed the same thing. This is a very uh, busy slide, but what we have observed that influenza vaccination also was able to strongly improve the response to other types of, of, uh, of microorganisms, including against, uh, against uh, SARS-CoV-2. And thereafter, we assessed the COVID-19 incidence during both wave of the pandemics um, um, uh, in, in the Netherlands. So we observed that actually in the, 30, uh, in the vaccine, um, uh, vaccinated employees of our hospital, which is approximately 10,000. We are a university hospital with 10,000 employees and approximately half of them uh, got influenza vaccinated in the, uh, in the autumn of 2019. So we observed between March and June 2020, during the first wave of the pandemic in the Netherlands, that there were 30% less infections of COVID-19 in influenza vaccinated individuals in our hospital. And due to this fact, we also followed up thereafter 
uh, the, uh, the COVID-19 incidents in the individuals who were vaccinated in uh, 2020 uh, with influenza vaccine. And between, uh, between October 2020 and March 2021, we have observed 51% less infections, less COVID-19 in influenza vaccinated individuals. This makes us to propose that this type of life uh, uh, of live attenuated microorganism, whole organism, because uh, uh, influenza was an inactivated uh, virus, basically, can mimic an infection, can induce epigenetic changes and functional changes in innate immune cells, and they can induce a non-specific protection against uh, a different type of microorganisms. And we can use that in the future, also hopefully in future pandemics to. Uh, to uh, to produce at least a partial protection of the of the population until specific vi uh, vaccines, which are very important, can be de developed uh, after one one and a half years. Uh, so, with that, I would like to thank you for attention and also all the colleagues who uh, participated in uh, our study. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Neta, for the wonderful uh, uh, presentation. Uh, there is a question. Um, uh, is uh, BCG a, a good way to protect against uh, uh, tuberculosis, multidrug resistant after COVID-19? Uh, that we do not know. Of course, uh, BCG is unfortunately a, a relatively poor uh, vaccine against tuberculosis by itself against pulmonary tuberculosis. Um, of course, now BCG revaccination. Let's say after COVID nineteen, nobody has done uh, these studies to see whether whether it would protect against MDR um, uh, tuberculosis. Uh, but I do think that we need. I mean, BCG is important. It's it's a very important uh, vaccine. Still, the only one against tuberculosis at this time, and uh, we are still using it. It's one of the most used in the world. But I do think that we need to develop new and better vaccines against tuberculosis. Um, I have a question regarding the study you presented, uh, I think, Activate. Um, um, it's important, I don't know if the patients uh, uh, you studied were vaccinated before the study with BCG in their life. Do you have this information? So was important if they were or not uh, uh, vaccinated sometime in their life with BCG? This because is a very I know important I, I know that not all countries are uh, doing mass vaccination. Yes, this is a very important question. And actually, I do think that it's important, uh, although we don't have yet data from all the countries, but uh, there is a tendency. That in the Activate study, yes, the people were vaccinated. There was Greece when the study was performed. And at the time that our volunteers were, were born, uh, Greece had a, uh, had a uh, BCG vaccination program. So what we have done actually in Activate is in fact revaccination because these uh, were all individuals who got BCG at birth. Uh, we do observe a pattern actually, and you're perfectly right here, that we see more protection in the individuals who are revaccinated with BCG rather than uh, uh, a first vaccination with BCG. But we are now uh, performing several trials, both in Africa and in Europe, and hopefully we'll, we'll have the answer soon during this year. Um, it's a question about the, the flu vaccination. Is this observed with live uh, uh, attenuated virus vaccine or same with uh, adenomultivalent uh, flu virus? 
This is uh, this is inactivated virus that we have used. Uh, as far as I know, um, uh, there were no uh, clear studies with with the live uh, live attenuated uh, viruses. But there are several studies around the world from a, a, a number of countries, from United States, from Italy, and Brazil, and all of them actually. Uh, suggest various various level of protection, anything between 20 and 60 percent. So uh, uh, we are going now to do an actually a randomized trial in in Brazil, where not all the people have uh, have um, access to vaccines to see whether we can we can add these to our our tools against uh, against COVID-19. So hopefully we will know that soon. And another question, were uh, other factors that differed between vaccinated and non-vaccinated employees other than the vaccination? Well, uh, not that we know, uh, not in terms of, uh, let's say, the basic demographics, but this is an observational trial, this uh, a study. This is not a randomized uh, controlled trial, which is very important. The most important bias in, in such observational studies, that's why we would not recommend at this moment influenza vaccination because it's not proven. It's just an, uh, an indication that some, something is going on. But the most important bias is the healthy vaccine, uh, the healthy vaccine bias. So the people who go, all, all our employees are offered influenza vaccination but only half of them are getting vaccinated. So the question is, who are the people who get the vaccines, the people who are more uh, aware of the importance of vaccination, who respect rules and so on. So it is very well possible that this contributed also because those would be the people possibly also respect much better the social distancing rule, uh, having a mask, washing their hands during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the healthy, uh, healthy vaccine bias could very well have played a role in our study. That's why we are doing now a placebo-controlled uh, trial. Thank you, Professor Neta. Um, wonderful discussion, and uh, uh, we could uh, continue, but unfortunately, we have to to stop here. And um, I want to thank uh, all the speakers for their wonderful presentations, uh, fantastic uh, talks, and uh, uh, I learned a lot. I thank all the participants for uh, their questions, and uh, I hope that we can uh, post more uh, questions and more answers uh, in the future on the site. Um, I uh, uh, recommend to, to go to the uh, website and to sign uh, the World Sepsis Declaration. Uh, please uh, use the social media and uh, uh, be aware that next week we'll have uh, uh, the slides and the presentation on the website. And I want to thank you, uh, to thank all the, all the sponsors of the World Sepsis uh, uh, Congress. Thank you. Uh, I, I think you enjoyed the, the session and uh, uh, I wish you uh, to stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making World Sepsis Congress 2021 possible. Session 4 is already in the feed, and Sessions 6 and 7 will follow next week on May 18, 2021. Session 6, The Voice of Healthcare Workers, was especially intriguing, so we recommend tuning in next week. Until then, stay safe and thanks for listening.